0: All right. hope everyone's doing well. If you got your Bibles, you can turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Appreciate it, David, leading us and appreciate your continued prayers. Thank you for pointing out my uh, lack of ability to name things well and come up with good titles. Every time I meet a pastor that comes up with these great titles for things, I'm like, man, y'all are talented. I just, I, I can't fathom the ability that it takes to come up with great titles all the time so uh just call it what it is amen but be praying for me i've narrowed this like anytime i start a new series i'm a little bit worried about it uh and uh i've narrowed the 10 Commandments series down to like 17 sermons so it's going to uh we'll get there that's that's partially a joke y'all don't worry about that but um Just as we uh, begin it, we're we're looking forward to it and looking forward, of course, anytime we get the opportunity to open up God's word and look at it together as a blessing to us. Um, I've never met a believer. I've never met a Christian in my life that opens up God's word, reads it, studies it, shuts it, and says, man, I wish I wouldn't have done that. You know what I mean? That doesn't happen. Um, God's word is always good to us and it's always rich and it always benefits us. And we're thankful to have it before us. And so as we turn to Genesis 2, we're going to discuss some things concerning that this evening, Genesis chapter 2. I, uh, I want to commend a book to you if I can. This is a book that I struggle getting through because it's so rich, but I think it's so important. Um, it's called the A.W. Tozer. The book's called The Knowledge of the Holy. It's just a book talking about who God is. And it's a short little book, but as I said, I'll read a paragraph of this book sometimes. I just have to stop and think about what he's saying. And the reason why I say it's important is because I think his point that he begins in this is something that I want us as a church, of course, to catch. And maybe if we can catch this, even as we go through Genesis here together, uh, it's going to benefit us as people, but also um, benefit our church. Tozer says... What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And just think about that statement. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because when we think about who God is in our minds, and who, who didn't, that begins to shape us and who we are. But Tozer goes on and says, What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And if we have a low view of God... A low view of God, which he says is entertained almost universally among Christians, that's the cause of a hundred lesser evils. A low view of God is the cause of a hundred lesser evils. Tozer turns around and says, The mightiest thought the mind can have about God, the mightiest thought that the mind can entertain about God, You must consider that God is infinitely greater than that thought itself. A lot lot is there. But his point is, we cannot think too highly of God. It's impossible. We can't think too highly. And what matters to us the most for us and for our life is that we have a high view of God. And the reason why I start there is because when we go to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 and we see how creation is formed, we recognize, and maybe you're like me, maybe not, but we recognize, even as I've been studying this, how many things our culture is dealing with and our society are dealing with, even right now, that the answers to those things are found in Genesis 1 and 2 especially in human relationships, especially on issues like gender, on issues like marriage, these things that are filing into our, creeping into our society, and no longer even creeping, they're blowing the front door down. What happens is whenever our society even, or let's take that more personally, when we as a church proclaim a low view of God, then what should we expect the society to hold to? When we as a church hold to a low view of who God is and what God expects and what God has done, then we shouldn't be surprised if society around us has a low view as well. And we shouldn't be surprised about where they go and how they take off on different things that do not consider God or his word. So for us, it's important that we have a high view of who God is. And know that you can think the mightiest thought you can think of God right now in your own head. I love that That's an exercise you always try to do. Go ahead and do it. What's the mightiest thought you can think about God and who he is right now? And he is infinitely greater than that. He's infinitely greater than that. Genesis 1 and 2 lays that out for us. Here is the one who spoke everything out of nothing. Here is the one who said, let there be light, and instantly there was light. Here is the one, not by the power of force, anything other than the word of his mouth. Brought everything into existence. This is the one who not only brought everything into existence, he also establishes it all. Therefore, as I've said many times, remember, he gets to set the rules because he made up the place, right? He created this place, therefore he gets to set the rules for this place. This is his world, and we're just living in it. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Y'all probably use that with your kids. But that's the thing that Genesis 1 and 2 is telling us. And so as we get to Genesis 1, remember chapter 1 is telling us this account of creation. This account of creation and how in chapter 1 creation leads up to the creation of man. You begin with the first three days as the Lord forming things, the next three days as the Lord filling those things He's formed. And so now you have these these first three days that leads to the next three days, and God is leading up to the creation of man, the last creature that is created, the last one that is called into existence, if you will. Remember last week, this is important, we talked about how man is the vice regent of creation. He is the one that God has put in charge to exercise dominion over creation, to rule over it. Man is the crowning jewel. And when I say man, I'm talking about humankind here. Humanity is the crowning jewel of God's creation. And in the way Genesis reads, God has created this earth to bring himself glory and to bring glory by serving serving man. And so therefore, when we get to chapter 1, we see how God creates everything and it leads up to the creation of man. Then chapter 2 comes along. And as I've said before, uh, chapter 2 is really an elaboration or an amplification of day 6. When we have the first chapter, we see the six days laid out. Then, of course, we'll talk about the seventh one here in a little bit. But we see the six days laid out of God's creating work. And when you have that, now chapter 2 comes where he's going to take that sixth day and explain to us in an amplified way or a greater way how he created man and woman. going to explain to us how he's done this. So chapter 2 becomes this amplification or elaboration of day 6. Not a secondary creation as some people have tried to argue, but an elaboration. Remember last week, was it last week or two weeks ago? Did we meet last week? I was about to say, man, time is, it seems like forever ago since we met glad we didn't Um, two weeks ago we talked about this how how uh, chapter one is like an overview map of everything and chapter two is pulling out like a subset and saying let's look at this one day even greater and so that's what we see whereas chapter one creation leads up to the creation of man chapter two begins with man as the starting point of all of human history So chapter 2 is going to begin with man as that starting point, the one who's going to name all of the creatures, the one who the Lord is going to bring them up, the center of creation here. Man is seen as the beginning of history in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, we see three particular things. In chapter 2, we see three particular things. One, we see the dwelling place that man is put in, the Garden of Eden. Two, we see the command that man is given and then finally, we see the gift of marriage and the relationship between man and woman. We see those three things in this chapter. So I want to kind of elaborate on this. Now, I want you to know that I'm not skipping over day seven and the Sabbath rest, okay? I'm not skipping over that. We're going to address that when we, get, when we start looking toward chapter three, okay? So we're going to come back to that day seven because what's happening here is we're elaborating on day six again. So y'all get what I'm saying? I'm not jumping over it. I'm not forgetting that passage. We're going we're gonna to come back to that. But tonight I want to talk about what's going on here in chapter two. So I believe in Genesis uh, there are ten. If you see this phrase, chapter two, verse four, there are, the, I, I promise you, the letters in this Bible have gotten smaller and smaller. Um, they're shrinking. So um, I got this. So in chapter 2, verse 4, it begins with, these are the generations of. Do y'all see that phrase? These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Now, if you would note, if you look, and I can try to point this out in a couple different places for you, um, that phrase, these are the generations of, is going to repeat 10 times in Genesis. So you'll see, these are the generations of Adam. Adam. And you'll see these are the generations of Noah. Then you'll see these are the generations of Terah, who was Abraham's father. These are the generations of Jacob. Y'all see see what I'm saying? So what's happening here in the way we should understand uh, Genesis is Genesis is a book of genealogy. It's a genealogy book, and the way that ancient cultures did genealogy is that you would list out, here are the people born in our family, right? So you have the list, and you see that like in chapter 4, and then chapter 5, you have the list of those that were born out in those generations. So you have the generations laid out. And then whenever there was a significant person in the family line that came along, you would stop and tell that story. So as you're writing your genealogy of your family, some would just get a mention. You know, such and such, born, had a couple of kids, died. They get that. But some who may do something important in the process of this, they would stop and write the story of that person. And so that's exactly what you kind of have happening here in Genesis. This is a genealogy. Now, again, that'll become even more important when we get to Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 and other places where it talks about the seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. But this becomes a genealogy here. And so you see that this is the generations of the heavens and earth when they were created. So this first section here is speaking about this early time, the generation, the creation of Adam and Eve. Then you'll have the generations, as I said, of Adam and move on forward. So you'll see it split up in that way. Now what happens here is he says these are generations of the heavens and earth when they were created in the day when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and the mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust Now, in chapter 1, we see that the man is simply formed, just like the rest of creation. But now in chapter 2, it's telling us exactly how the man was formed, by the dust of the earth. So the Lord takes the dust of the earth and forms man, and then it tells us that he breathed his very breath into him. Now, it's going to go on and tell us that he made man. He made a garden Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's going to tell us about how rivers flowed through the garden and out of the garden. And how the Lord God then in verse 18, nope, 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 that's a 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man in that garden about what he could eat. So, the first thing we notice here is how God makes Adam, and he places Adam in a special place. He places, places him in the garden. He makes a special location for Adam. And what we see here in this, this chapter is how we, we, we note that man was created in the first chapter. Now in the second chapter, not he created man, but he's made a special place for man, a paradise country called Eden. Now, of course, people have been trying to find Eden forever, but that's that's not going to be possible. What we do know is this probably was or this obviously was a real place. We can even know from the rivers and the way human history is structured about the area that this place would be in in the Middle East. We can even see those things. But when we focus on Eden as this place that we're looking to find, as archaeology do, then we may miss exactly what's happening here. What's happening here is that Eden is created for a purpose. This is where man would be with God. This is where man would dwell with God. And so, in putting the man in Eden, what we have here are a couple of things. Now, I wanna, I wanna, there's so much involved in this that matters for the course of, of the scriptures. Adam is going to be told a couple things. One, we've already talked about he's the vice regent, the king, if you will, of over creation. He's given responsibility of kingship over all of creation. Not only that, we're going to see how God speaks to Adam, and it's going to be Adam's responsibility to do what? Speak to Eve. The command to not eat the tree was given to who? Adam, not to both of them. It was given to Adam. And then Adam's responsibility would be speaking God's word to God's people, right? So not only was Adam the king, he was also a prophet, if you will. The work of the prophet was to speak God's word. So Adam was a king and he was a prophet in this sense, as carrying that same office. But not only that, we see Adam as a priest in this passage as well. And what I mean by that is this. The Garden of Eden is not just a garden that's lush and nice and a cool place to hang out. The Garden of Eden is where Adam would go to be with God. He would be with him. They would walk in the cool of the day, if you will. They would spend time together. That's where Adam would go and worship, if you will. That's where Adam would go and be with the Lord. So the garden in and of itself is an archetypal sanctuary, if you will. It's a sanctuary that God dwells with Adam there. Now understand, God made man in order to be with man. Does everybody understand what I mean? This is important. God made man in order to be with man. Because we're going to see this over and over again. God wants to dwell with his people. The scriptures are going to bring this up over and over again. What happens in chapter 3 is that relationship between man and God is broken, and God cannot dwell with man in the way that he desires because of sin, right? And so, but what what does the statement say over and over again in the covenant? I will be your God, and you will be my people, and we will be together. And in Revelation, that's exactly what he says. I will be your God. You will be my people. And God finally in the end will dwell in the midst of his people. His people will dwell with him. So you see here in the Garden of Eden, the garden is not just this lush, nice place for Adam to hang out. The garden is the place where Adam was with God. The garden is the place like the... Like the, the, the sanctuary of the Lord, if you will, where Adam and God would walk together and they were together. For God created man to be with man. And that's what the garden was. It's no coincidence, by the way, that whenever you get to the building of the tabernacle, Exodus chapter 25, for example, and they lay out the building of the tabernacle, the tabernacle itself is going to represent or give the image of a garden. In fact, there's arboreal language, that's a big word, arboreal. I know that from Arbor Day. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Y'all planted a tree on Arbor Day? Arboreal garden. The arboreal pictures are seen throughout the tabernacle. So in the Holy of Holies, you have this this picture of where God dwells with his people, right? So God dwells with his people. That's where God would meet his people in the holy holy of holies, the square room in the midst of the tabernacle, and what's on the tapestry other than a tree that is placed on and to be woven into that. And you're to enter in through the east, just like you enter in through the east of the Garden of Eden. And you come in through the east, and that's where you meet with God. The tabernacle is where God meets with His people. And you would go in and meet there. The menorah itself, y'all know what the menorah is? The little thing that looks like the, the, the lamp's? That Jews have the Jewish lamp thing. That shows my knowledge of that. So you have that. That itself looks like a tree, as many have said. It looks like the tree of knowledge of the uh, the tree of life. Excuse me. So it looks like a tree in and of itself. So this this was to be in the tabernacle. It was to be placed there. My point is, throughout Scripture, God wants to be with His people, but because of sin, He can't be with Him in the same way he desires until sin is dealt with. So when you build the tabernacle, you're building a garden-like space for God's people to go in and God to come and meet with them, the priest. When you build, even then, if you move even further through the text, you get to Revelation. And what comes down in the end of Revelation is nothing, the new Jerusalem, right? is a cubic square thing like the Holy of Holies that has the same garden motif that's going to come down and God is going to dwell with his people there forever. And so ultimately what's happening here in Genesis chapter 2 is not just that God's making a nice spot for Adam to hang out. God is also building this place that will be the sanctuary by which Adam would be able to dwell with God and God would be able to dwell with him. And this is where they would be together. This is where they would be together. The beautiful imagery of this is going to remain that we're looking for this garden because what happens after the fall is Adam is kicked out of the dwelling place of God. Adam is kicked out of this dwelling place and the fiery swords come up in front of it and he can't enter it. And whoever enters it is going to be cut in half, right? And so the Lord God Almighty Jesus Christ ourself has to be cut, torn in two, to go back and create the the way back to the tree of life. Does everybody get what I'm saying? So ultimately, we see that this Garden of Eden is the sanctuary of the Lord that he has created for God and man to be together. And he's created this for the glory of God and the purpose to honor the man and bring honor to him. So he makes this garden. And in the garden, he says, every tree is beautiful. Everything is good to eat. There are no prohibitions by which Adam has that he cannot eat, right? You can eat of any of the trees except for one, except for one. God places two trees in there, and he says you can eat of any of these trees except for this tree. This command was given to God. You can't eat of this tree, which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You may surely eat. By the way, this is important. Chapter 2, verse 17 there, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Everybody got that? Remember that. God gave Adam, the man, the command, right? He gave him the command. Remember what the command says. This is going to be highly important when we get to chapter 3 because you will see what the serpent, the devil, the liar the disturber of the peace says, is quite different than the command. It's quite different. Because Satan is going to say, he said you shall not eat of it or what? Touch it. It's going to be important. But here we see that that's not the command given. The command given is you can eat of any tree. All these trees are good for you. You can eat of any tree you want to except for that one. So here this man was placed in the garden. He was placed there alone, and he has one command, one command. uh, probationary, if you will, command. You can eat of any tree except for that one. Now notice he uses this word man. The word for man is ha-adam. And so at this point, this is speaking generally, specifically of, of the first man, Adam, but this is not his name yet. Does that make sense for everybody? It won't be till Genesis chapter four, verse 25, that he's literally called Adam. Here he's talking to man, which is the only one there. Has everybody got me? So Adam, he says, in this sense, you are to to eat of any of the trees except for that one. This indicates clearly for us then that the first man who, who for a while was the only human being on the planet, in the garden, that he was the head of the human race. This is important. This is important because it's important in the whole art of Scripture itself. For Adam is the head, right? He's the first one, and therefore the command was given to him. Adam is the one who is the vice regent that has the kingship over all of creation to exercise dominion over it. Adam is the one who's given God's word to be that prophet who's going to tell the people of his word. Adam is the one. Adam is the one who is the priest who's placed in the garden where God dwells and he walks with him and has open communication with God. Adam and God in this garden originally dwelt together. God was with him. That's Adam. I want you to note what I'm saying here is this. In the Old Testament, there's three offices. There's three offices in the, uh, for the Jews, the people of God. Those three offices are the prophet, the priest, and the king. Right? The prophet, the priest, and the king. You'll find prophets, you'll find the priests, and you'll find the king. Those are the three offices of Israel. And what you have is Adam represents that. He has all three. When you go into the Old Testament... Those offices do not mix. They're not the same person. Only once does the king act as a priest, and that was David when he went in and ate the the food that was dedicated there at the sacrifice. He got scolded for that. Y'all remember? That those offices don't mix. They're not the same person. So prophet, priest, and king is found in Adam, the first one, and there's coming a second Adam, right? And what Christ will be for us is the prophet, The one who speaks God's word to us, who is the word. He's not just speaking the word, he is the word. He's the priest who doesn't just offer the sacrifice for us, he is the sacrifice himself. And he's the king who doesn't just come to rule, but he serves and brings kingship. So when you get this image, Adam is the prophet, priest, and king who fails at his duties. We'll get to that in Genesis 3, but I'm just letting you all know in case you didn't know. He's the prophet and priest and king who fails in his duties. Christ is the prophet and priest and king who will come and fulfill them all. And so he, when we say Adam is the head of the race, it's through Adam that sin will enter in. It's through Adam that will bring destruction and the fall. And it's going to be another head, a one who's coming, which is Christ, the second Adam that will bring redemption. Is everybody tracking with me? If not, you can go back and listen to it later and try. It's going to be Christ that brings redemption in this. So Adam here, operating in this way, has this command. And it's right for him to have this probationary command, if you will. In other words, you can fulfill this office and you can be who, you've, who I'm set you in here to be. Just make sure that fulfilling this office comes with obedience. It comes with obedience. The task that he's given is to work it and keep it, Right? The task he's given is to work it and keep it. Work is not a four-letter word. Y'all got me what I'm saying? People say that all the time. Oh, that's, that's terrible work. Work is in design from the beginning. Before the fall, work was there. And whenever, and you know this, if you've had the ability or the opportunity in your life to do what you love to do, the work that you love to do, you know how fulfilling that is, right? And you know what that means to us, to fulfill us, and that work is good. We're not to be, even before the fall, work was there. Now, after the fall, work becomes more difficult, right? Work is a joy before the fall. After the fall, it's the sweat of the brow and the muscle in the back, right? So we see this. So Adam is to work and keep this ground. He's to eat of any fruit of it. By the way, whenever the priests are told how to handle the tabernacle, it's the same words they use. The priests were to work and to keep the tabernacle. Same exact words. And so here Adam was told this, this is your responsibility to work it and to keep it and do not eat of that one tree. You can eat of all the others, but do not eat of that one. Adam was told to have subdue the earth, have dominion over it. He must do this in a twofold way then. He must cultivate it, open it up, so as to cause to come up out of it all the treasures that God has stored for man in its use of the earth that we are benefiting even from today, like amplification, you know? So he has that. But he also must watch over it, safeguard it, protect it against all evil that may threaten it. He must, in short, secure it against the service of corruption in which the whole of creation now groans. In other words, Adam was not just to work it, he was to protect it from evil. When the serpent enters in to the garden, Adam's responsibility with that serpent is not to listen to it, but to take it, crush it, and kick it out. Does that make sense? That was his role. That was his responsibility. But you need to understand that man can only fulfill this. Adam can only fulfill this calling over against the earth, if he does not break the bond or connection which unites him to God. You can't break that relationship. In other words, Adam is to work and to keep it, protect it, but if he were to break the relationship with God, he is not able to fulfill what he's been called to fulfill. Does that make sense to everybody? If you lose your relationship to God, you can't find your ultimate fulfillment. If you lose your relationship to God, you can't do what you've been called to do. That relationship with God... Drove him, fueled him, and connected him in this way. In order to rule, Adam must serve. In order to rule, he must serve. He must work it and keep it. In order to maintain his kingship, in order to maintain his responsibility, he must serve and do these things to keep the earth. He must serve God who is his creator and lawgiver. So what you see in Genesis 2 is you see that Adam is given responsi- is given a position as vice-regent, king over creation. That's his responsibility. And in order to keep that, he must keep his relationship with God. He must remain close to him because it's God who gives him that purpose and that fuel to do it. In order to find fulfillment, it's not just in the working and keeping. It's in the relationship with God and working and keeping. Does that make sense to everybody? And so it's in that. And so Adam, once that's lost, now you see why work does not have the same purpose it used to have. Now you see why it does not have the same joy that it should have. Because the relationship with God and man is lost. And that relationship is what fuels us in our joy and in our fulfillment and in our satisfaction. Even in every task. Even in every task. In order to rule, he must serve. By the way... Again, trying to show you, doesn't this show a great connection to Christ? I mean, Christ, the Son of Man. Remember that Mark chapter 10, verse 25 verse, where it says, For even the Son of Man, the the title Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel chapter 7 is when the Son of Man approaches the throne of the Ancient of Days, right? God himself and the Ancient of Days Gives him a crown that cannot be taken from him. Gives him the kingdom that cannot be destroyed. He will rule and reign and have dominion forever and ever. In fact, in Daniel chapter 7, it's the same language of having dominion and keeping it forever and ever. Daniel 7 speaks of the Son of Man as the king who will never lose his throne. And Jesus refers to that when he says, For even the Son of Man, the king who will never lose his throne came not to be served, but to serve. Because he does not gain that crown simply by rite of passage. He gains that crown by serving and doing what God has called him to do. And so Jesus even says, not my will, but your will be done, Lord, as he goes. Understanding that it's through service that he will rule. It's through service and giving of himself that he will rule. Adam gets all of that in chapter 2. We see that laid out here. But when we understand these things, as one commentator says, he says, All culture, that is, all work which man undertakes in order to subdue the earth, whether agriculture, stock breeding, commerce, industry, science, or the rest, is all the fulfillment of a single divine calling. But if man is really to be and remain such, he must proceed in dependence And in obedience to the word of God, religion must be the principle which animates the whole life and which sanctifies it into a service of God. So here we see Adam is called to work it and to keep it. And this probationary, if you will, command, do not eat of that tree, was to show Adam that obedience is demanded from you if you're going to be fulfilled with your calling. If you're going to be fulfilled in your calling, then obedience is demanded. The connection to God must remain. And so Adam here has this command that was given to him to do not eat of that tree. Eat of any tree you want to. Just don't eat of that one or you will surely die. Because that allows Adam to fulfill his calling in obedience to God. And that's where fulfillment truly comes. The third particular thing here, and I was hoping to... I was hoping to get to the very end and not have time to deal with marriage um, and husband and wife relationships. Uh, But I feel like I got a few minutes left. Um, Is what we have in Adam in this relationship. Adam is placed in the garden. He's the only human being created at this time. And the Lord, as the beginning, like I said, of human history, Adam... The Lord Lord brings every animal to Adam to name. He starts bringing them to name. And now, remember, a part of the Imago Dei that is within all of us is that we are created as relational beings, right? As God is a relational being. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit always has existed in relationship. There always has existed as a trinity in this relationship. So God is that. So we are created as well, just like God in His image, as relational human beings. Just imagine what solitude does for us, right? Just imagine what solitude does. If you think about it, think about the movie Castaway. Y'all see what happens? My wife would never let my hair get like that. You know what I mean? Because why? We, I need her to tell me to trim my nose hairs and, and, and everything else. Y'all know what I'm saying. I think I need her. I mean, that's, that's, what, that's what she's good at. Wait a minute, wait a minute. This is recording. Um. But think about what solitude does. We're not created to live in solitude. Think about what, that, what happens with that. I was watching a documentary about solitary confinement, you know. And they're talking about this day. They're, they're saying there's this day after a certain number of days you're in solitary confinement. There's this one day where the, it just flips, where your mind can't take it anymore. And it takes you into derangement, seeing things. Why? Because we as a people are created to have relationships, We long for them. We desire them. And that's how God has made us. And so God brings every animal to Adam in a way for God to prove a point to Adam, to create the taxonomy, if you will, of creation. He's proving a point in this passage. Every single animal is brought to Adam and Adam names them. And what does it say? Not one of them is a proper, not one of them is a proper mate for him. Not one of them is right. And so that purpose not only shows Adam at the beginning of human history, but it also demonstrates that the relationship we long for cannot be found in just the creation itself. No matter how much you love your cat, your cat is not enough. And that's really a sad life if you think it is. No matter how much you love, your animals are not enough, right? They can't fulfill you for what you ultimately need. They can't fulfill it because we're created... In a way that these creatures do not. So Adam is seen as naming all of these. But in all of these it says not a proper mate was found. Not a proper mate was found. But then, then of course we see how God created woman. The Lord God called it. It's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God, uh, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he could call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. And, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and, clo- and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, made into woman, and brought her to the man. So the Lord takes this and sees that there's not a proper mate for a helper for Adam, if you will. And that's the language he uses. And so he sees all the animals come up. There's not one. He needs to make one. So he he brings Adam up out of the dust, forms him, breathes his breath in him, and then he brings woman from Adam. Now, we know the beautiful imagery of this from the side. Matthew Henry is the one who does it first. You hear it quoted a lot in, in, um, in uh, weddings and other things that he didn't pull. Uh, uh, and I'm probably not going to be as poetic as him, but he doesn't pull a bone from his head so as for the woman to rule over man. He doesn't put a bone from his foot so as for man to dominate over her. He pulls one from his side so as them to walk together and to be together. And what we need to understand is this. That the image of God, if you go back to chapter 1, the image of God is found in men and women, right? Together. The fulfillment of the image of God is found in men and women together. It's found in them together. For that statement and that command was given, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. You can't be fruitful and multiply without each other, right? So that command is given in the image of God there in chapter chapter 1, verse 26. And God said, let us make man as humankind in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Notice that he creates male and female within the context then of the next command, which is be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So this uh, creation mandate is dependent upon God creating man and woman. Now, I want to speak to this in the best best way I can and try to get you to understand. There's many people today... Who are trying to make an argument that the Bible does not speak against homosexuality? They make this argument for a couple of reasons. One, they say you can only find passages in Leviticus that may speak against it. And who wants to go by the rules of Leviticus? So they pull out it's just terrible hermeneutics. Remember, hermeneutics is understanding and applying the scriptures. And so really they don't understand what the Old Testament means in the New Testament in the context of the scriptures, but they take these passages and say, we got to excuse that, that's Old Testament. But then they take the two passages, the two verses in Romans chapter 1 that speak to it and say really that's, they have to kind of skirt around it saying that's really not speaking to homosexuality, that's speaking to abuse or some other sexual abuse or some other things, which there's no indication that that's the case at all. It's properly, I believe, translated homosexuality. But the issue is they're trying to make this case. But even, and hear me when I say this, even if they were to prove that that's the case, even if they were to say, take out Leviticus, take out Romans 1, even if they were to prove that that's the case, the whole tenor of Scripture speaks to God creating man and woman to fulfill the law of God and His glorious purposes. Does that make sense to everybody? In other words... You don't have to go to one passage and say homosexuality is wrong. Go to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 to say, here's how God has created it, and this is how he's put us together. And we together fulfill the creation mandate. We together are showing the image of God. Man is created, woman is created from him, free and clear, by the way. Created woman, and they are together demonstrating God's glory. They're together demonstrating God's glory. So you don't, the whole tenor of Scripture, you can put these things together to say, from the very beginning, this is how God created it. Now, it's really kind of crude. Um, we want to be loving as we possibly can. Not only in, 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 in probably, hopefully not in you know, in this room, but probably many of us are going to find people close to us who are going to deal with these issues. And we have to lovingly and caringly discuss how God has created us, right? And remember... A high view of God, a high view of God is important in this. That God makes the rules and we don't get to bend them or twist them or do anything else. But here, clearly in this passage, he's created man and woman in his his image for his glory. And in this, we find God giving the very definition of marriage. This is what marriage is. This is what traditionally we have held marriage as. Man and woman united under the covenant of the Lord. You see that in Genesis chapter 2. And you see what happens, men. As soon as Adam sees his wife, what does he do? He starts singing, right? That's happened, that y'all don't do that? As soon as he sees her, he breaks out in poetry. Imagine if you're longing for something, right? You're longing for this relationship, and every creature on the earth. Comes before you. Imagine even Adam in this process. He's longing for relationship, knowing he's made not to be alone here on this earth. And every creature comes before you, and you're naming them: cat, dog, cow. You're going through the whole process. And when you get to the end, you're like, there's nobody. And you fall asleep somehow, which men tend to do, is a nap that's created here in Genesis 2. Praise God. It's not sin. Napping is not sin. Here even before the fall. It's not an effect of the fall. Amen. Adam goes to sleep and he wakes up, maybe even discouraged after having all of these creatures come before him and not a helper, not someone suited for him, not someone he longs for, not someone he can have a relationship with. Maybe he's discouraged as all of these come before him. And when he wakes up, what does he see? Amen. Praise God. That wow moment is exactly right. And what I said earlier about nose hair and my wife, um, when I saw her, it was a wow moment. That's recorded. And we sing, and he celebrates, and he's thankful. The great gift that Adam receives in his wife brings forth thanksgiving out of his heart. Why? Because this is the one he's longed for, right? This is what he's looking for. This is the one who fulfills him. When you get to the end of chapter 2, I love what it says. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Notice here what's happening. Moses is taking this another step. Because does Adam have a father? Earthly father? He's got to leave? No. Does Eve have an earthly father and mother she has to leave? No. Neither one of them even have belly buttons. Look it up. And so ultimately, ultimately they don't have this. What is Moses doing then? Moses is here after they've come out of the Exodus and they're walking to the promised land. And Moses is taking the words of God down and writing the scriptures for them so they'll know where they come from. Moses is explaining to them in this passage why they are married, why this happens. How does procreation come about? Why do you commit yourself to one person over all of time? Why does the Lord speak this way? Why do we do this, this institution of marriage? They're not having to leave father and mother here. Adam and Eve aren't. Moses is saying this is exactly why we do what we do. God created it, marriage. They leave Mother, man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they become one flesh. And then verse 25. And man and his wife were both. i got to be careful. Sometimes I say naked, but Allison told me not to do that too. Man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And why is that? Because in this sense, there is no condemnation between them. There's no flaws you have to hide. There's no innocence that has been lost. There's no guilt or shame in this. They're happy. They're together and they're happy. The end of Genesis chapter 2, you find what is meant by perfect peace. Adam is working the ground and keeping it. There is perfect peace between man and the earth. He's doing it and this is joy and he's fulfilled. Adam has a wife and they are naked and they are happy. There is peace between them, right? It is bliss. It is joy. They have it. There's peace there. And Adam is dwelling with God in his garden. And they're walking together in the cool of the day. And he is keeping the commands, if you the command, if you will. He's showing his obedience every single day. Every time he chooses, as he goes into that garden to eat the fruit of all these other trees and all this other stuff God provides, he is demonstrating his obedience to God by not eating the fruit of that tree. And Adam was in perfect harmony with the Lord, at perfect peace with him. They were together dwelling together in the garden worshiping together in the garden enjoying each other God and man perfect peace man and the earth perfect peace man and woman perfect peace at the end of chapter 2 it was everything was right everything was right and then chapter 3 comes and the great disturber of God's peace comes in and this is where catastrophe happens this is where catastrophe happens I believe as we see Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that Sabbath, rest, and peace, those two words go together, right? That God created this earth. He put Adam and Eve in it to dwell with them and be with them for there to be perpetual rest. That rest does not equal in this passage. Okay, he gets a nap, but it doesn't equal doing nothing. It's not idleness. It's work, but that work brings peace to him. This joy of spending time with his wife, that brings peace to him. It's the joy of walking with the Lord and meeting with him and talking with him. That brings peace to him, right? And that was, he was created to keep that perpetual peace, that rest that was there. And that's what we have at the end of chapter 2. God's good creation. How he has established it and set it up. You have God's prophet and priest and king in the garden. You have God's image on display as Adam and Eve are there together loving each other, caring for each other, having a relationship where they are naked and not ashamed. And you have Adam and Eve working and keeping this place to find fulfillment and joy through their obedience to the Lord and keeping it. Everything is good. Everything is good. What I hope for and what I want you to know is that there's coming a day for those who believe in Christ, where everything will be better than it was in the garden. There's coming a day where there will be no more probationary commands. You understand what I'm saying? There's coming a day where we will dwell with the Lord forever. He will be our God and we will be his people and we will dwell with him forever. And sin will be no more, the scripture says. So we will not only be with him. There's no more probationary commands that we have to follow. Our obedience is found in the very one who died for us, rose again for us, and secured it for us. And so Christ becomes our joy and our obedience, and we are with him forever. What we see in Genesis 1 and 2, what we hope for there, we are looking for something far greater than that in the garden, something far greater in the new Jerusalem. That's what we're looking for. So while we see that here, let me remind you, as Christ Jesus comes, the second Adam, as Romans says, as he comes in, our true prophet and priest and king, he will secure a place for us to dwell with him forever that will never again be lost. It will be ours. We rejoice in that, as we are his and he is ours. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us in your son, Jesus Christ for you are faithful. And so, God, help us to understand the joy that we have when we are obedient to you and fulfill your commands. All of this by your grace, God, as we trust in you every single day. And thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. In him we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much. We'll see you Sunday.